Close your eyes for a second. Imagine getting up on stage at Turner Hall Ballroom, or if you aren't familiar, on stage at a big concert venue, to tell a story to a full house. You are the only one on this huge stage, and you don't have any notes. You are telling the story from memory. Feel anxious yet? For most, the anxiety stems from being on stage and messing up, or looking foolish, or embarrassing yourself. For Dan, the ex-fabulous storyteller you'll hear in just a moment, the anxiety about his performance actually stemmed from the logistics of getting to and from the stage itself. On today's podcast, we will meet two people who made this performance happen, Zach and Dan. To begin, let's hear Dan's story, told live on stage at a 2017 X Fabulous Story Slam at Turner Hall Ballroom in Milwaukee. Good evening. I had never been on a ski hill before I found out that I had a degenerative eye disease. And I learned how to ski with an organization called Blind Outdoor Leisure Development, or BOLD. And since I've learned how to ski, I've also lost the majority of my remaining vision and learned how to ski pretty well. One of the things that I did learn is real skiers don't look down the hill. We just ski. (laughs) Not really. I, I ski with a guide. I've been skiing with Mary for about 10 years now. And we just have a rapport when we're skiing that is like half magic, half science. And the way we connect on the hill, we get to the top of the hill. Mary says, you ready? I say, yes. She says, go. I go out, and she calls by voice, left and turn, right and turn. Go, go, go means keep your speed and direction. And all I do is focus on her voice and the snow under my skis. It's almost like meditating. And we get to the bottom of the hill. Mary says, coming alongside you. I put my arm out. She puts her hand on my arm. I follow her speed and direction, go into the chairlift. She says, you ready? I say, yes. She says, come out. We line up in front of the chair. She counts down. Three, two, one, sit. Chair scoops us up. We start heading to the top of the hill. We debrief a little bit, visit a little bit. Get to the top of the hill. She says, three chairs, two chairs, one chair. Stand up. Chair drops us off. Slide down the ramp. Put my arm out again follow direction and speed, we're ready to start over again. We can do that all day long. It's like magic. Just amazing. One of the things I do like to do, though, and I'm very happy to do, is periodically the ski program director will match me up with a guide who's got a little less experience than Mary does. Somebody who's guided partially sighted people, but not totally blind people. And Guiding a partially sighted person, pretty easy stuff, you know. Follow me. Don't go in the trees. Stuff like that. (laughs) Little bit more intense guiding a totally blind person. So what, what I do is I try and focus on the fundamentals of guiding. 
And one of the things I really don't like, so we focus on this, is getting on and off the ski lift. And there's a protocol to it that the blind skier skis into the lift, lines up on the inside of the lift with the ski lift operator next to them, the guide on the outside. That way, as that chair comes around to lift us up, and those chairs don't stop ever, so as we line up, we want the blind skier in the middle, guide on the outside, lift operator in the middle, keep it all safe, right? So that would put me on the left side of the, the chair. So we've been skiing, doing the, doing the morning, following a protocol, getting a little rapport, nothing like Mary and I have, but, you know, having a good time. So we come up, doing our protocol, getting into the lift, and, you know, seat comes around, lift comes around, scoop us up, blah, blah, blah. And it was a little rough, rough load, but, you know, no big deal, except I'm in the right side of the seat, which means my guide is on the ground <laughs> watching me go up into the sky. <laughs> and... I had never been on a ski lift by myself before. And I started remembering this speech I did in school about the 14 different ways you could die on the sky glider at Summerfest. <laughs> and a ski lift is pretty much like the sky glider at Summerfest, only there's no safety bar. Uh, which makes 15 ways you could die on a ski lift. And at this point, I'm hoping that my guide is in the chair 30, 40 feet behind me. And I thought, I should turn around and check if he's there. But then I thought, no, there's 16 ways you could die on a ski lift. <laughs> and, of course, by this time, we had... Uh, started rising up the 500 or so feet to the top of the lift and the ski lift operator down the bottom radioed up to the top to let him know there's a blind guy by himself on the lift <laughs> and you guys are going to have to figure out how to get him off. So, so as we get to the top, there's a ski patrol person on the platform waiting for me. And she calls out, do you want us to stop the lift and then you can get off and I can walk you down? And I'm thinking, yeah, that chair's going to swing. I'm going to get my skis crossed up. We're going to topple off this platform and that'll be 17 ways you can die on a ski lift. So... I declined her offer, but I was awful darn happy to hear her voice so I would know, because no one else was going to say, three, two, one, stand up. So I had that reference point of knowing when to get off. So I just declined, said, I'll get off. And as I'm coasting down that ramp to get off, I hear the ski program director calling out, go, go go, right, and turn, and stop. 
And as he said, stop, all of those things I had been thinking on the chair disappeared. And I thought, we got this. And that was my one and only time I have ever been on a ski lift by myself. Thank you. The first question I really have for you is, have you skied at all this year? I had a chance to ski both the week before and the week after I told that story. It's a nice context for the story and the experience of skiing. Yeah, no kidding. So how long have you have you skied? I have been skiing for about 30 years now. And I learned how to ski with the program that I'm in called BOLD, or Blind Outdoor Leisure Development. And they taught me how to ski. And as I, as I mentioned in the story, I'd never been on skis before skiing with them, which was after I was legally blind. There's so many questions I have, um, <laughs> but and now that we're talking, I've I've never downhill skied before. I'm a little scared. I have cross country skied. My dad's a big skier, um, so he's always trying to get me out there. But one thing I'm really scared of is wiping out. And I assume, like any good skier, you've had your share of wipeouts. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, it's one of those things. If if you ski and you ski hard, of course, you will eventually fall, and it's just one of those elements of skiing that it's part of the rapport of skiing with a guide, uh, that I have confidence in them, and I have to realize that, yes, I will fall, but it's not a result of my guide. It's the nature of skiing. But like I say, I've, I've just learned over the years to separate that lack of, of control that comes right that second before you crash, um, and the lack of sight. Those are two separate things. You mentioned you're legally blind, um, and and in your story you mentioned it was a degenerative, a degenerative eye disease. Have you experienced blind, blindness your whole life? Well, when I was a kid, I could see pretty well. Now, of course, you need to keep the context of how much I see now versus how much I used to see. And in that context, I used to see very well. Um, I never had good vision by standards of somebody who's started with 20-20 vision, but I did have pretty good vision. I would have been able to drive a car at one point in my, in my career. And uh, from then... I've gone down to a point where I have what they call light perception. So in the setting where we are right now, I can tell there are lights on. And I could identify those lights, but lights don't really illuminate anything. So we have another guest here with us today, Zach Lifton. Zach was actually an integral part of the story you heard at the top of the podcast, but you wouldn't necessarily know it from just an audio recording. Zach, how did you and Dan meet? I was a volunteer with Ex Fabula uh, starting a couple seasons ago just because I ended up in Milwaukee in general and found myself in a city I didn't know much about. And I heard that Ex Fabula was a 
great organization that was bringing in a lot of different voices from different parts of the community. And I went to a volunteer orientation workshop about how to be a good volunteer for people who were either audience members but also storytellers like Dan with uh, differently abled folks. And yeah, and so through that workshop experience, I then the evening of Dan's story, I was asked to help Dan out because I'd been to the workshop and they said, okay, let's put your knowledge to the test, uh, Zach. And and now that you're a pro dealing <laughs> with differently abled folks, here's Dan. Uh, he can't see. Have at it. And I thought, oh, no, I don't really know what I'm doing, but that's okay. We, we've managed to work it out. How did the experience of guiding me at Turner Hall compare to what you learned about providing sighted assistance to somebody who's blind or visually impaired. I was really glad that I had attended the orientation, actually. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I really would not have felt comfortable at all. And at the orientation, at the workshop for the volunteers, um, folks from Vision Forward were there. Actually, at the session itself, I said, hey, it's great to hear about how to do this, but can we actually all stand up and do it? Like, can one person close their eyes and, like, let's set up the room and actually stand up and do it? And I kind of got laughed at at the time, I think. Um, but, but, like, oh, gosh, we have to get up. Um, but it was actually very helpful for me at that workshop to actually physically do this and then translate how that felt in kind of a conference room in a public library to translate, okay, this is how this actually works. So, Dan, take me behind the scenes of the the story at Turner Hall. Came into the venue, and at that point, everyone was arriving at the venue. So I just became kind of part of the group of volunteers and organizers and venue people, etc. I felt very welcomed, but it was certainly a, a situation of you'll have a chance to meet Uh, Zach, who's going to be assisting you tonight. I can't remember what the word was, but uh, those are always awkward terms. Assisting, guiding, what have you. uh, Chaperoning me. So we sat and uh, visited a little bit, and Zach came, and somebody introduced us. We introduced ourselves to each other, however. We took some time to explore. And part of that explore was how are we going to negotiate this space that we're in? Identifying the tasks that we had to do to accomplish the storytelling for the evening. There are some very interesting places at Turner Hall where one would not want to be negotiating them either without sight or under the influence of drugs and or alcohol. (laughs) You know, one example that comes to mind is the stairway that goes up to the stage surface, which is half steps, and on the other side is ramp. But those are the kind of things that we just negotiated on the fly, and that was part of the excitement of the evening. At that point, how were you thinking that was going? I mean, Um, I was very... That's an overstatement. I was not very nervous. I was a little bit nervous, <laughs> frankly, just because I tend to be an empathetic person 
and I have been in situations myself where I am presenting in front of a large crowd for some reason, and I know that that's a nerve-wracking experience mm -hmm. in and of itself. And so here I was thinking, here's this guy, I don't know anything about him, I am going to assume that any person telling a story in front of a large crowd is going to be feeling some level of anxiety. And then this guy has this added layer of, yeah, the, what you just explained. How do you get on stage? How do you get off stage? What's going on? Where is the microphone? These things that, as a sighted person, we don't even have to have a second thought about. When the other storytellers, for example, that evening were getting on stage and doing sound check, it was like, hey, can you come up on stage and get in front of the mic for a second and say a few words? And that took all of, you know, two minutes for someone to jump up on stage and just do that. With you, Dan, it's like, okay, come up on stage and do sound check. That is a huge ball of questions, like you were just saying. And so for me personally, it was a, a mix of... I don't want this guy to accidentally run into a wall and hurt himself on my watch. <laughs> Combined with, oh, I just want him to generally feel like this is a positive experience. Well, and that really was an excellent part of the relationship that we presented there was the fact that we fell into our roles in a way that was almost seamless. I'm fully aware that although I like to project myself as very capable, and in many ways I am very capable, there are certain things that I'm simply not capable of. Mm -hmm. And knowing what the weaving route up to the stage is and where on that good-sized stage that one microphone stand is, as opposed to four feet further where the eight-foot drop-off is. <laughs> um, that wasn't something I wanted to nego negotiate on my, my own. Are you visualizing, say, when you're on stage, are you visualizing in your head what that audience looks like, or are you re relying on other senses to kind of paint that picture for yourself? I really do rely on other, other senses. I, I have a fair sense of the acoustics of a room and if I can digress here for Please. a little bit years ago I used to have an opportunity to drive race cars and one day after a driving experience I was thinking through the experience of driving and how that worked and how we negotiated the track and how I interacted with my guide. And it was kind of an aha moment that I realized visual cues are simply not relevant. So my concept of you know, visualizing that racetrack in that instance really just wasn't a part of the experience. And similarly, in telling the story... I didn't really, it's just not part of my experience to say, I wonder what these people look like. I wonder, are they staring at me? Are they being receptive to what I'm saying, etc.? Those visual cues just, 
just aren't part of my psyche. Zach, what have been some of the good things that have come out of your decision to volunteer with Exfabula? Oh, there have been so many. I mean, obviously, we're talking about Dan today and that experience, and that was definitely one of them. And, but I've met wonderful people who I've had other collaborations with now outside of Exfabula doing things in the community, which has been wonderful. I often, if I am volunteering at one of their big events where there are a lot of people, I often know a lot of the audience members be new in a new city where, oh, I can walk into a room and I can see a lot of other people who I who I know. And so there's always that moment of connection with others, which is important to me. And I think that there's a certain personal pride that I feel when, when I hear that Ex Fabula has, you know, gotten some grant or has gotten, you know, noted in the media somewhere or, oh, somebody, I'm talking to them and they say, oh, I went to the next Fabulous show and it was so inspirational, something like that. By being a volunteer, it helps me feel like, oh, I was somehow a part of that. Even if I only volunteered at this one particular thing, I was there helping and I can feel proud about what an organization is doing by being by being a little teeny tiny piece of it <laughs> knowing that backbone people are here in Milwaukee such as yourself is is just so inspiring and confidence building okay. that that's that's a fantastic thing vision forward was mentioned earlier have you yeah. had any interaction with them um, I am a member of Vision Forward, and I've, they're kind of one of those um, places that I don't interact with a ton, mm-hmm. but you've got to, you know, as, as somebody with a vision problem, it's like, well, thank goodness they're there, because when I need a resource... I can say, you know, Troy, their tech guy. I got this problem. Can you, can you help me figure this out? As well as, you know, I, I'd like to use their store. Couldn't play cribbage without a set of Braille cards. So, you know, that's that's my source uh, for things like that. I've also done some volunteering there where I've facilitated uh, groups and so forth, which is just a great way to get into some very interesting conversations with people. And thank you for coming to me today and sitting in this hot office. That's the yes, thing we turn is. off the we turn off the fan and then it gets really hot. Oh. But I can't have that fan going. It messes up my sound. Well but, thanks for having us, Gabe. Yeah. This is fun. This is great. What a cool experience. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I like this. That was Dan Lococo and Zach Lipton, both Milwaukee locals who connected via X Fabula. Dan as a storyteller, and Zach as a volunteer. Are you new in town or just looking to expand your network and do something good? Visit unitedwaygmwc.org volunteer to browse hundreds of opportunities to give back and get involved. Thank you to our partner on this podcast, Exfabula, a local organization committed to strengthening community bonds through the art of storytelling. Find out how to tell your story at exfabula.org. Living Local is produced by myself, Katie Kuhn, Melissa Hannon, Brian McCaig, and John Waldbauer.